All right, so last week we talked about how the law was this provisional thing that would ultimately lead to something better. The old era of the law, Paul says, uh, in Romans 6 and early part of Romans 7, that old era of the law ushers in a new era, and we participate in this new era through the gift of grace, which is our justification and union with Christ. Now, Paul wants us to understand in this section that the law can't threaten this gift. Like, the gift can't be taken away because we don't measure up to the law. It can't be taken away because sin still somehow works within us, both before we are in Christ and after. It can't kill life in the Spirit. The law is an enemy to this new era in, this, in some ways, and the law, because the law can't keep us from sinning. In fact, Paul says it provokes it, like makes us want to sin all the more. The law incites in us to do the opposite of what it prescribes. Like my mom's injunction, no chips for you, makes me somehow want chips even more than before. Now we're going to approach today in this text around four questions. Now one of these questions is kind of an interpretive question that's going to guide us through the rest. And the next three are the questions that essentially Paul asks here in the rest of Romans 7. So the first one is question one, who is the I in Romans 7? Here Paul shifts gears and gets pretty much personal in Romans 7, unlike much of the rest of Romans. And who is the I that, uh, that Paul is talking about? There's been tons of debate about this question and how it applies to Romans 7. Is the I pre-Christian Paul? Is he describing what it's like, in other words, for us as someone before we come to Christ, is he describing that experience of life apart from God and what it looks like to be apart from God? Or is he describing a post-Christian Paul? Is it what it's like to be a believer in Christ? It's his personal experience that he is describing. Or is it something else? Both or something else? Who is the I? Now, in a lot of ways, we've been on this long trajectory as a church. It started last winter as we walked through the Ten Commandments and now to Romans 1 to 7. And let's start with this. Life without Christ for Paul means we are slaves to sin under its power, its influence, its control. And this means we cannot please God. We can't be made right with God. We can't be free from the power of sin. Even the good law, which comes from God, is captured and recapitulated by sin. We are apart from Christ, and we are divided selves, and the law prods us like a cat, like cattle prod, prods. It prods us and reminds us just how divided we are and how far we are from God. Now, in verses 18 and 19, this is why Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. The I here is definitely describes life without Christ. I mean, if you can remember your life before Jesus, what were the things that incited you, urged you, pulled you into sin? What were those things? Now, we're going to look at this description from St. Augustine. It describes a time when he stole some pears as a boy. Listen to this description. Near our vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. 
Though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste, I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Now hear this. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pairs of of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away, and I tasted in them, all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. Augustine is saying there, and this was before he knew Jesus. He was a pagan, living as a pagan. And Augustine says, is saying there is always something, an, an internal move in us for sin. Like when we lie or steal or are cruel, there is always this superficial motive. And the motive is to play God or to be like God. Here, Augustine again. In a perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. What then was it that I loved in that theft of mine? In what way, awkwardly or perversely, did I imitate my Lord? Did I find it pleasant to break your law unpunished? And so produce a darking shadow of omnipotence? What a sight! A servant run away from his master following a shadow. Could I enjoy what was forbidden for no other reason except that it was forbidden? We have this deep desire in us to be in control, to be in charge, to have power over our lives. And every law laid upon us is an affront to this. These laws remained in us that we remind us that we aren't God. We aren't in control. We can't live our lives as we want. So sin seizes this desire in us provoked by that law. And it tells us, throw off the shackles of the law to be who we want to be. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me who to be. That's why we do this. We want to be God. We want to be in control. And when the law tells us we can't or we aren't, we want to throw those shackles off and go pursue whatever life we want. That's what we do. And in our world, there's this little added elixir to it, and that's individualism. We all have this right, we're told, from the minute we're born or we can understand things, that we have this right to undiluted happiness and its free pursuit. So now our most basic way of being God is creating my own happiness. In fact, if I'm truly loving, then I must let you create your own happiness while I create my own. And as long as we don't infringe on these rights, then we will be good. And this is a little L law of our own making. This little L law then acts like the law of God over us, and it too incites us and incites sin to seize our lives. And the culture war that we find ourselves in today is founded on these very fights over rights and another's happiness infringing on your own. This is life apart from Christ, is it not, beloved? A life bent towards personal happiness, a life crooked with doing what we want, a life that wants to be like God and have no infringement by God on my own sovereignty. And the more exposed 
we are to law, to the law of God, or the laws we make, the more sinful that force will be aggravated in our lives. So, we can say yes, the I here is pre-Christian Paul, but it could also be Christian Paul. I mean, who doesn't experience the pull, this pull and push as a Christian? The question surely isn't free, feeling the pull, the desire. I mean, who hasn't woken up with regret over doing something totally antithetical to who they say they are as a Christian? All of us. And we know Paul will unpack that we can't be out of Christ once we are in Christ. But we, and we all, yet we all feel exactly what Paul's saying. So this is why many interpreters believe Paul is speaking personally as his, his present day life in Christ. The struggle with sin and the power of sin is not fully removed for the Christian, but persists for us until death. Now this word seems so hard especially when we are no longer slaves to sin. Remember, that's what Paul has been saying to us. We are no longer married to the law. We are no longer under sin. We are under grace. Our status has been changed. We've been put into Christ. But still, the old habits of sin don't go away. They are our everyday reality. Like Romans 7 reads true to our experience. It's universal, especially those words. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So what is it? Pre or post Christian Paul? Well, I think Romans 7 is actually the auto biography of just life, all life under the law, whether Christian or non-Christian, Jew or Gentile. To be under the law is to be possessed by not just the law, but sin, using the law for the purpose of evil. And even though the law promises life to those who do it, we can't ever do it, so it kills. This was life in Adam, eating the tree in the garden. This was Israel's experience in the wilderness and in the promised land. And this is the experience of those who lived before Christ, slumming it with whatever dance partner will allow us to take the lead and create our best life now. And it is our experience, at least in part, in the daily battle of discerning the gift of law between the gift of grace and the law. And the eye of Romans 7 is you and me. It's Paul and everyone. Paul has lived it and sees it throughout the history of God's people. So that should beg the next question that Paul asks in our text. And we will work through these somewhat quickly as they essentially provide a nightcap to the discussion of sin and the law that we've been having. But before Paul unpacks the most magnanimous uh, description of living under grace and the Spirit in chapter 8. So the second question that Paul asks is, is the law sin? Is the law sin? Are you saying, Paul, that the law is on equal footing with sin. Of course, he answers it just like he's answered all the questions here in 6 and 7. No, may it never be. If not for the law, I wouldn't have known what sin even was, Paul says. And does this not describe us, beloved, before we were be made aware of the grace of the gospel? Now, this may be hard for some of us to recall, but for Paul's Gentile audience sitting, listening to this letter in an apartment church in Rome, they knew this life, this old life, well, Paul says, I would not have known that coveting was a sin. 
Now, he chooses coveting. Why? Because we have, like we have talked about months ago, coveting gets at our hearts, our desires. We can't do the, we can do maybe the external trappings or appearance of the outside law, the external law, but we can't keep the law at the heart. Our taste buds are always undone by sin. But it isn't the law, but sin, Paul says, which seizes the opportunity produced by the commandment. Now that word opportunity means the base camp of an expedition, the point of departure. Sin seizes law at the origin point. The law then is thought to be a safety lock on a gun, but it might also be a trigger. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Here he seems to be referring to humanity before the fall. But the law, the command, do not eat the fruit of the tree, ignited a fire in humanity because of sin. He says, sin came alive under the, com- the command. And that's the mix, the mix, the elixir. Law under the power of sin. And he says, I died. Sin tricked me. Sin deceived me. Sin undid me and used the law to do it. The law is holy, just, and good. It promised life if obey, and that promise was true, but sin exerted its force over the law, and Paul says, I died. Now, let's try to make sense of this. This comes from N.T. Wright. He says, imagine you have lots of burglaries happening in your neighborhood. So to combat that, you have an alarm system that's well and good, and you could use that alarm system, but because of all the other burglaries You want a new and better system installed. The old system was fine, but you want a new system. And the day of the install, you had to be out of town with your family, so you invited your neighbor who you thought was a safe, good, loving neighbor to come over and supervise the installation. The neighbor comes over, and suddenly as he's sitting there watching it be undone, watching the codes be put into the system, the neighbor, the once trustworthy neighbor, now has an idea, I can rob your house because I know how the system works. There was nothing wrong with the system, but it put an idea into your neighbor's mind and enabled your neighbor to pull it off. The neighbor is the composite of sin and me in Romans 7. The law is God's law, holy, just, and good, just like the alarm system, an excellent thing and in good working order. But if you have an untrustworthy neighbor helping to install that system, it will work against you more than for you. And so that leads to the next question, verse 13. Did the law, which is good, kill me? If it did, then can it really be good or is it a curse? Now notice Paul's logic. If I didn't know sin before the law but was ignorant to it, and if before the law I might still die but have no knowledge of it, then is the law really a good thing? Like, isn't it better just to live in ignorance to sin and YOLO the heck out of life? Because it seems that the law just brings death. So Paul does it. Paul again says, no, no way. The culprit is sin. Sin is a power. Again, it is the apt description of Paul's condition. Paul moves here from past to present, describing what it's like to live under the law. Notice who Paul exonerates here. The law and the eye living under the law, trapped as they are in this negative spiral. The more they try to embrace the law, the more the law says to them, you've broken me. 
Israel was right to embrace living under the law. The law is spiritual, Paul says. It is from God. But I am made of the flesh, enslaved to sin. The law doesn't enable rescue from the problem of sin and death. It exacerbates it. It's, it intensifies it. Here, Paul seems to be expanding Romans 2, 17 to 24. Israel claiming to be better off before God than the rest of the world because they have the law, but the law, because of sin, reduced them to being in the same state as the rest of the world, guilty before God. The problem Israel has under the law is the same as the moralist. It's the same as you and I. We get crushed by it. None of us can stop doing what is wrong, even when we know it's wrong. Not Israel, not a pagan, not us. We are all morally incapable of doing good. The law, the real problem is sin. In verse 13, what is going to happen to sin? What was responsible for bringing death to me, he says, was sin in order that it might appear as sin, in order that sin might become very sinful indeed. This is repeated in order that, uh, the repeated in order that is itself a bit of a puzzle. Why would Paul, who is often implicated in Paul's in order clauses, want sin to grow to full heights? Paul says something similar in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in order that sin might abound. Galatians 3.22, the law has shut everything up under sin. Why did God give the law knowing that it would make sin grow and flourish to full height? Why did he do that? Well, Paul says it. In order to condemn it, to punish it, to undo it once and for all. So sin might be seen to be what it is. That it might be condemned and punished and done away with. Here, Paul seems to go in full-on lament mode. The law is spiritual, he says. We know this, but we are sold into sin. And this might be the most difficult phrase in understanding a post-Christian Paul here. I mean, sold into sin seems to indicate our slavery to sin. The law is spiritual, but I am the flesh, carnal, unspiritual, subject to the gravitational pull of sin. It's like the law adds this density to us. Before the law, we were less weighty, but the law added weight, and then sin gave the gravitational push and pull, and the momentum sets us on a trajectory that the harder we might try to keep the law, the worse we are at doing it. And that's why we come to verse 15. I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, what I, hate I do. Frustrated, undone despairing. And Paul doesn't let up. Verse 16, now I do what I don't want to do. I agree with, the, when I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law. What the law says about me is true, and that is good. And this proves that it is no longer I in the control room, but I under sin. Sin sets up shop, comes as guest, ends as master. Sin pilots the ship and heads us for the rocks. For what's in me, the fleshly me, the part of me that lives contrary to the law of God, hates the things of God. And then in verse 18 and 22, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And for good me measure, Paul repeats, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Again, this is us under the law, pre-Christian, post. This is how Paul talks in all of his letters, by the way. Paul articulates the struggle 
of becoming righteous in Christ. It is a struggle. Even though we are saints, we still battle the power of sin. Even though we've been displaced and put into Christ, we still live like we are outside of Christ. Even though we are adopted into God's family, we still struggle living like we're orphans out on our own. If we're honest with ourselves, this is us. Now take a moment, an honest moment. What this very week did you do that you did not want to do? And when a new law emerges, when I want to do what is right, notice that you do what you, you, you did something you did not want to do. You knew you did not want to do it. You said even to yourself, this is antithetical to who I am. It doesn't make sense. I'm a Christian. I, I should not want that. I should not do that. Why do I do that? And then right out of that, a new law emerges. What do you do? Well, I'm not going to do it anymore. You make a promise. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to quit cold turkey. I'm going to grind this thing out. When I want to do what's right, Paul says, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Notice this seems to flow out of what Paul describes as being in the spirit earlier in chapter 7 and 6. New taste buds, a new heart for God's word. He seems to be describing when I delight in the law of God. But at the same time, even while still reading that word, another law is eating and making war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. I mean, how, like seriously, how is this not true in your and I's experience? Like we're sitting there reading God's word. We're thinking, sitting there singing holy songs in worship. We're sitting here listening to the preaching of God's word. And where does your mind go? What things do you desire, even in this moment? How does sin not lay, just lay encroached at the door, even now, where our members want to do anything and everything contrary to God? Like, it could be even like sitting here and going, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show everybody like how holy and righteous I am. I'm going to sing a little louder. I'm going to raise my hands. The pride that even in a worship service lays in wait. The distraction, the constant ways our minds are, man, would you just finish already? I got things to do. Like, that's what, happens like we come here like we we want to be free we want to confess we want to do what's right and the first thing we do once we walk in the door is we start talking bad about our neighbor this is the war within friends and it is a war paul describes the battle of living life in christ and in the flesh as a war and where does Paul end up? Where do we? Sin grew in Israel. Sin grew in God's people. Sin grows in us. Why? So that Jesus might be preeminent. The last question is, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is the question today. We all need rescue. So I want to enter into this question with two warnings 
and a great comfort. This comes from, uh, much of this comes from Keller's commentary. The first warning is, they warn us that no one ever gets so advanced in the Christian life that they no longer see their sin. If we ever think we are over sin, or this sin or that sin, it doesn't matter. If we ever think we're over it, the Bible says, be careful that your feet don't slip. If we feel pretty good, pretty, pretty good, we are deceived. This is one of the things about, like, when I get mad at myself for sin, I remember reading about this in a, a book about living in the suburbs, but it hit me so hard, and I think about it often, is that there's so many times that I think to myself, well, I shouldn't struggle with this, or I should be past this. And yet, if the Bible's true, it tells us that we are never past sin in this life. We are always grinding along with it. Now, we have been set free in Christ, and in those moments, we are free to choose to live a life for God and not sin. However, what seems to be always this dark passenger that runs alongside us, that we shouldn't be, a, uh, we shouldn't be a surprised by the desire or the temptation. We shouldn't be surprised that we desire things contrary to God in this life. And the minute we start to act surprised about this reality in us is getting at this warning. If we ever think we're over sin, be careful that your feet don't slip. And our maturity in Christ, our advancement, our sanctification, the more we live life in the Spirit and not under sin or the law, is the fact that we become more humble. The, the, the fruit of living in the Spirit is a humility. This is where Paul is leading us to with this last question. Even when we know and see ourselves making progress against many bad habits and attitudes, we grow more aware in those moments of, our, of the rebellious, selfish roots still within us. The holier we are, the more we cry about our unholiness. That is the advancement in Christ and maturity. And that leads to the second warning. Secondly, we're being warned that no one gets so advanced that they don't struggle with sin. It's quite important to expect a fight with our sinful nature. In fact, just as a wounded bear is more dangerous than a healthy and happy one, our sinful nature becomes more stirred up and active because the new birth has mortally wounded it. Now, this is a statement that you might have heard in kind of our circles is that mortification of sin. That's that process of putting to death sin. Paul is going to talk about this later on in the book of Romans, but this is the response that we cry out, wretched man that I am. That work of putting to death sin in us starts with that cry of wretched man that I am. The way you're going to mortify sin in your body is recognizing who you are and your struggle with sin. The 17th century Puritan John Owen wrote the following As a man nailed to the cross, his first str- he first struggles and strives and cries out with great, great strength and might, though as his blood and life energies waste, his strivings are faint and seldom. So when a Christian first sets on a lust or a sin to deal with it, it struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relief. 
It may have a dying pang that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it is quickly over, especially if it is kept from considerable success. This is the fight, the war within that starts with this warning, this cry of wretched man that I am. John Wesley says it like this, before I willingly served sin, but now it is unwilling, willingly, but I still serve it. We are at the same time both justified and sinner, and yet life is in this mix. I serve the law, Paul says, with my mind, but with my flesh, the law of sin. This passage also doesn't just warn us, but it greatly comforts us. It is typical when we struggle with sin to think that we must be terrible people or very wicked or immature to have such wrestling. But Romans 7 encourages us that the temptation and conflict of sin, even some relapses into sin, are consistent with being a growing Christian. And so a comfort is found, the comfort is found in the two cries. Our heart cries for two things at once. The desperate cry, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When we look at our own lives honestly, we can only conclude we are wretched. And grasping this helps us grasp the gift of grace offered in the gospel. Now, this is not good to our modern ears. We don't like to hear that we are or could be wretched. I mean, what a word, right? It conjures up all sorts of things for us. In fact, we might even have to do battle with that because that's a, a way that we've been described in our life on this earth from people that have said they loved us. And so even hearing it kind of clangs in our ears. And yet Paul postures this as a great comfort. This cry is a comfort for us, wretched men and women that we are. I love this quote from the late Norm MacDonald, the comedian. Listen to what he says. Some people believe that man is divine, like a kind of hippie idea. I can't believe that because I know my own heart, and I know that's not true. Other people that believe that we're wretched, like the cynics or the atheists would believe, we're all just wretched nothingness, just animals, just creatures. I can't believe that. It doesn't make any sense that we're just beasts. I will say that Christianity has this interesting compromise where we're both divine and wretched. And there's this middleman that's the savior, that through him we can become a divine, but we're born wretched. I kind of like that one because it sort of makes sense. The second cry is the resilient and thankful cry. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the great comfort this morning. All we are and all we've done merits judgment. Even our little L laws that we recreate will do the same. Look around. All the little laws that are, have thrown off the shackles of the Bible and the shackles of the Christian narrative to live free in this world. Is it freedom? No. It's just more law. More law that crushes people. If you try to leave this place and this law for that place, you're just going to get more law. And it's going to promise you salvation, and yet the minute you outstep that community and their laws, what do you get in response? 
condemnation. And if you live life under the law as a Christian, what do you get? Condemnation. And so Paul says that is not the way for us. The only way to salvation is to look to Jesus, who can, is the only one that can rescue us. Jesus on the cross for us. That is where we rest all of ourselves. This is the gift of grace. He is the gift of grace that enables us to come to this place and make this cry. And it is a comfort. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ and his death and his resurrection that we are made alive to God and able to fight the good fight of faith, to engage in the battle within, to mortify our sins and to vivicate our lives. It is only by looking to Christ and being made alive that we can put to death the sin that is within. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin. Notice how he puts these two things together. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. God gives us victory through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be uh, so this morning for you saints as you struggle under the weight of your own sin and the law that condemns you. May this morning you find healing, the healing balm of forgiveness and the victory of God's Son for you. May you walk under grace and know that is your status as someone who is in Christ, both sinner and saint, both struggling under the weight of sin, not doing what you want to do, and doing what you don't want to do, and yet redeemed and rescued from this body of death by the victory of Jesus. Let's pray. God, help us this morning. I mean, really, like, you could read this text and sit down. I mean, it's, it says what we feel and offers us what we need. And so I pray this morning that that would be true. No matter how we might have walked into this place, that we walk out clinging to Jesus. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.